Imagine being told from a young age onward that we're living in the end times. How might that impact you as an adult, even if you left that religion? Well, we have answers for you. In this week's episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, we're bringing on guest Matthew Garnier to discuss his book, Swept Up, Lessons from the End Times, which is his cheeky memoir that talks about just that. He and I explore the impact of growing up in a religious bubble and the commonalities among those who've experienced this type of upbringing. We also touch upon the dichotomy between rational thought and faith, the dangers of unchecked belief systems, and the path forward in navigating uncertainty. How could growing up in the era of 9-11, two stock market crashes, COVID, and a racial uprising affect a young adult's relationship with their faith? We'll discuss that too. It's time to get your favorite beverage, sit in your favorite chair, and get ready for this week's episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, Growing Up in the Dichotomy of Heaven and Hell, an interview with Matthew Garnier. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, created and hosted by The Mystic Geek. If you're looking to explore intriguing questions about the meaning of life and our place in the universe, then you're in the right spot. We dive into topics often discussed as sound bites on social media and take a deeper look, whether it's woo topics like astrology and mysticism, or seemingly mundane matters like technology and politics, we cover it all. We explore our own thoughts and beliefs, talk to experts, and uncover hidden meanings. These fascinating areas of exploration can help us question ourselves and better understand our world. Ready to grow and explore in your spiritual journey? We're glad you can join us. It's time to start your week off by being spiritual AF. And welcome back, listeners. Today, we have Matthew Garnier with us to talk about his book, which is titled Swept Up Lessons from the End Times or Oh Bother, Somebody's Blaspheming. Glad to have you here, Matthew. Thanks, Jess. Almost forgot about that second title there. <laughs> yeah, at least it shows that I went through the first few pages of the book. Oh, I'm impressed. That'll give us something to talk about. Oh, yeah, exactly. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. I, I guess at the moment, I really identify as an author. I've always had a bit of a creative streak and always had two sides to that coin, one being that I want to be funny about everything and the other that I take everything deadly serious. Mm -hmm. In a way, that's what the book is about. Definitely how it's written, I think. Hopefully people will appreciate the comedic side. But I see a lot of serious themes through those lighthearted moments. And on the other side, I guess, lighthearted moments in those serious events and themes from my upbringing. Sometimes we got to use humor to get through everything. It can be both a coping mechanism and I think a way of seeing the reality of something for what it is. Humor yeah. really is a thought device, a way of understanding what resonates in each of us, especially collectively. When mm -hmm. you see what lands, as a comedian would say, it's, oh, there's something there. Let's unpack this a little more. So I really think even beyond just being therapeutic, it's got a real purpose as an instrument in writing. Exactly. What led you to write this book? I always knew that I wanted to write a book. And I had no idea what that book would be about. I wanted to write a memoir even from the time I was a little kid. And I knew that the events of my life in and of itself weren't necessarily going to be captivating to a reader. But when I figured out how common this sort of upbringing is, where you live in a bit of a religious bubble, 
And there are some other comorbidities about it, to use a sciencey term. And just that is so many kids experience, but that even aside from those who have a crazy traumatic story of some kind of abuse or being in some sort of wild cult, there's a lot of within the normal spectrum, you know, of, yeah, I was just, I was raised in church and that was all I knew, or I was homeschooled and very often both, that there's a lot of common traits among those people, maybe that they don't even detect in themselves, but they know there is something there. So I wanted to scratch beyond the surface of just like stuff Christians say, just these little cliches that are funny and relatable. I think there's a whole lot of unpacking that we need to do, even if we're beyond the point of, yeah, okay, I'm not a total fundamentalist anymore. If someone is a fundamentalist out there, great. Like, I'm interested in your analysis of why that's a good belief system. But for many of us, I think there's this extra layer of baggage where it's every matter in life is life or death, or at least it's deadly serious to Mm -hmm. say. Just the, I guess, living in both the dichotomy of heaven and hell. And in my case, as the subtitle alludes to the belief that we're living in the end times and essentially that it's all going to end at any moment and all of the crazy theology, eschatology that surrounds that. You talked about the crisis that people go through right off the bat in the first few pages of your book. You're talking about those who grow up in this type of environment and like how they reconcile in there. If you don't mind, can you share a little bit of what you've seen as the commonalities for those who've grown up in this type of culture? I mean, I can share from my own experience, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I would like to bounce back to your experience too. It it is unbelievable how much me and my friends who were raised in the same church and surrounding bubble have in common, even beyond what we can directly attach to things that we were told. Just something that was in the air was extremely both unifying and troubling in that we saw the entire world through the lens of it's about being on the right side and getting other people to the right side, which at the end of the day, doesn't really make for a meaningful religion. It just makes for a horrible game that you're trapped in. So that's what I tried to outline in that opening bit, even before I launched into the story component of the memoir, was very anecdotally, as I said, but in a breakdown of how 20 kids are likely to fall in terms of how they respond to that. And I guess one thing worth pointing out is I whittle it down from so half go this way, half go this way, and then I cut that into segments. But then initially, there's the half who really just aren't affected by it. So I find that interesting in that this is a very subjective experience, as is any interpretation of trauma, right? This isn't an objectively bad thing that happened to us. It's a way that we interpreted information that was presented and whether because we took it way too literally or some of us were just more shaken by it because we were sensitive or, I don't know, it it struck some kind of chord. Mm -hmm. There were several of us who developed very serious anxiety disorders, became suicidal in different ways. And later on, it was this thing of this isn't normal, right? This isn't necessarily a reflection of the world at large. And when it came to recognizing that several of us had obvious panic disorders, it took us a while to realize, yeah, that's a disorder. That's not just like the natural response to you live in a world that's soon to be set on fire. 
something caused us to be wired that way. And it may not have been something we were born with, or it was a crazy cocktail of our natural chemistry and the environment, as most things are. I definitely believe it's a mix of nature as well as nurture on that part there. In the book, you talk about how unchecked belief systems can sometimes have fallout. And I think you've already shared quite a bit on that fallout being, for those of us, once we grow up, how it affects us. That can extend even beyond religion. I really think that anytime you hold to a doctrine of any kind, or even just a worldview that Mm -hmm. is simply to satiate a need or ironically to heal a different trauma, it's going to catch up with you. If there's anything that really the karma is, I think that's a better definition of it is that like something that you do or hold to insincerely is going to nag at you. And eventually it's probably going to come out and uh, rear its ugly head. But then again, there's a component of unchecked, I think, in any belief. There are those who say, okay, then the highest level is pure rationality. Like that, that needs to be the standard. That's the bar. Treat everything as an intellectual exercise, which is a noble pursuit. But I also think even in that, even when you say we've got some kind of absolute rationality here, there's always a, a piece that you can't arrive at a total proof of anything. Even the most intelligent person can get to a point where they've got something like almost fully worked out, but it's dangerous as hell because the one thing that they don't have quite right is a little bit flawed. That can be just as bad as someone who's gullible and blind wandering into a crazy ideology. So lest we become arrogant and say those foolish believers who act only on faith, I do think that faith has a place religious and otherwise, but that when you accept an entire doctrine or an entire system as part of that, which Mm -hmm. humans are prone to do when they think in groups, that's when it becomes dangerous. And that's when you really have to say, what am I accepting because it's part of this pack mentality and this hive mind and what is actually clicking with me and is the reason that I was drawn to this in the first place. Exactly. And you mentioned an interesting dichotomy there of rational thought or what we call rational thought being looking at everything from a very logical perspective, looking for empirical evidence. And then on almost the opposite end, we have faith, which is it's beyond rational thought or rather it's like we go through the math question, but we don't do the proof. We just know at the end that is the answer Whether it's right or wrong, that's what we believe to be the answer there. That's an interesting dichotomy. And then you throw groupthink into the mix. It's a powerful force. Yeah, it is a very powerful force as we're seeing in the contemporary world right now. So if rationality, if pure rationality is not beneficial or it's flawed in and of itself, and faith can be problematic if it's done blindly especially if it's radicalized, what's the path? What is the path ahead? There's not one. I'm sorry to give bad news and a terrible spoiler, but my my happy place, the end was accepting uncertainty and to find checks and balances in any epistemology, to use a big word that I tried to make as soluble as I could in this book. But the way that you arrive at your beliefs, that you're just aware of it and honest about it. I really think like, 
self-honesty is so undervalued. People know you got to be honest with others because you don't want to deceive them. You don't want to like paint a false picture, but we're so willing to do it with ourselves, probably because a lot of the things that we hold to, maybe by necessity, are emotionally driven or it's some kind of coping mechanism. Like even the most rational thinker is guilty of that on some level. You can't totally escape it. So that's where I say just like, try to always track the source of why you're drawn to something. And if it is purely based on, yes, I was raised like that, I'm responding to it, maybe that's totally okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. We are wired to be drawn to slightly different things, but I do think at the end of the day, it's supposed to point at something common. So this is almost a religious view of my own, but I feel like if there's some sort of absolute truth out there. It's not something that is going to be contained in any bite of truth in the way that we frame it through language. So there are different ways in which truth can be expressed. That doesn't mean that everyone's truth is true. Slightly going on a tangent, but I'll pull it back here. But it does mean that everyone can have a different way that they approach reality and probably that their lived experience of it is more true than the way that they state it. I think when it comes to groupthink, if you recognize that people are expressing things the best that they can, and yet nothing is going to be absolutely right, then you're more liberated to act on what actually makes sense. You'll be a little more wary of things that are purely doctrinal, because doctrine can only go as far as working like gutter lanes in a bowling alley, where it's like, okay, here's like, kind of the lane that we operate in. It's a very unsophisticated analogy, but just generally it's like guidelines. And at the end of the day, an ascent, a belief that something you subscribe to, to mean anything, it's only as good as your actions. And it can be as bad as the worst way that it's possibly taken. So a lot of things are actually best unexpressed if you really don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting that you mentioned the bumpers in a bowling alley. I think that's actually is a good thing for that because a lot of people out there, they need guidelines, they need rules, they need a boundary. Yeah. And it's not bad. Yeah. It's not bad at all to have those boundaries and restrictions because it gives room to explore. I forgot where I read about it, but there was a study that was done with small children or they were observing it where if there was no fence the children would all huddle amongst themselves because they felt like the world around them was unsafe because there was no boundary or no limitation. But once the fence was around them, they felt free to explore that entire space. And I feel that faith and religion, especially if there is some doctrine, I would say respectful doctrine there, life-affirming, treating people as equals, that type of doctrine, it does open up for people to explore, well, what their place in the universe versus not having any faith or any beliefs whatsoever. And at that point, they're just aimlessly wandering or they just stay stuck where they're at. And the irony of it is that to me, like when I went back and looked at the Bible with kind of fresh eyes, it was pretty obvious that the through line was about the law transitioning into what they would call the spirit, right? Like the freedom to think for yourself and use discretion. And what I see a lot of the modern church doing is, and probably just all religion, is turning it back into law because that's the human tendency. So no shame, but 
recognize that what you're doing is the course of nature and is what the Bible is talking about, that then you look for, it's like the, the, in the Old Testament, like when they didn't need a king anymore, they were like, give us a king. We like having a king. And that's what we do a lot of the times when we make rules that are like, yes, they're guidelines and they're good up to a certain point, but that needs to be individual to a certain extent because it's not the end game that you would stay within confines. So you would learn by being in those confines for a while how to operate beyond them and to understand the bigger picture. And growing up with black and white morality, I guess everyone does up to a certain point, but when that's the lifelong message, we have hard lines that we know you don't cross. Yeah, sure, there's certain things that virtually all of society is going to agree on, but I think it's actually more compelling to view morality as social structure in a way where it's, yeah, okay, certain things are going to be agreed on enough. That is a beautifully functional, democratic sort of operating system. And obviously, since we share certain things, it's reflective of something larger, but we don't have to say exactly where that's coming from and definitely not put it in writing beyond the, again, the societal structure of having law and things like that we agree on. But to box up the idea of God by saying, yeah, that's what he is, the rule maker, that's, that just, again, makes life into a game. Yeah, exactly. We could nerd out on Old Testament versus New Testament God, or even looking at descriptions of God or deity across religions. And some are the rule maker, but others are not. Yeah, that would seem to suggest that there's more symbolism there than, than it's taken to have. So clearly you have some religious background contributing to that knowledge. I'm a former Jehovah's Witness who, once I got out of it, went through high school as an evangelical Christian and then went to a Jesuit university where I nerded out so much on theology, I ended up with a minor. Wow. And by that point, were you, like when you were minoring in it, were you practicing or just realizing how much educational value your background had? I think it was more along the lines of realizing that no one has it right. So. Mm-hmm. Looking at the whole idea of, okay, that like Christianity has so adapted from the time of Christ onward that it felt like I could see the man-madeness of it. And at that point, I'm like, okay, God can be here, but God can also be in other places. That's actually what led me to look at becoming a solitary witch. Between that and looking at how much of Catholicism and contemporary Christianity especially the holiday traditions, intermingle with various folk practices around the world. Yeah. I've heard that from some witches, but I've never never dove deep into what that entails exactly. But I know what you're alluding to. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, my perception of Jehovah's Witnesses was that they were like way far out there. But you could tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like that one started as basically a denomination of Christianity, where it was a guy who had some ideas about what the soul is and tried to integrate that into a church. And then over the years, they, through a series of corrective measures, made it a little more wild and maybe cultish. Yeah, I think a lot of, I don't remember the exact history, but it's also closely aligned with the Latter-day Saints, where it's looking at contemporary Christianity as being 
quote-unquote corrupted by pagan and worldly influences and wanting to be a bit more on the pure side. And then you start getting into this really wild like end-time theology, and it's all about preparing for Armageddon. And if you make it past that, then there's like the thousand years afterwards, and then that's like the final showdown sort of thing. You had to prepare yourself go through, learn the different things, be baptized, and then also pull yourself away from the world because you didn't want to be corrupted. When I started having personal spiritual experiences from eight years old onward, which was like three years into the witnesses, I was living a lie. I was living the double life of I got to go and do what I need to do to gain the approval of the family of what basically was my friends at that time, but also realizing I had spiritual experiences that could not be defined or actually were seen as heretical within that confines. When I finally turned 15 and was the rebellious teenager, that's when I finally had my showdowns that I'm not going. So it was a wild spiritual experience. Are you saying (laughs) that you had like individual spiritual experiences within that collective experience? Not so... Jehovah Witnesses, they don't believe in magic. They are very objective, material world. The time of magic is gone. Me having visions of Jesus Christ showing up in my bedroom, telling me that my mother, who was ill, was going to be okay, that does not fall into the confines. Being able to sense the emotional energy of others, especially when they are in a dark place emotionally, that is not within their religious or spiritual confines. If anything, it was heretical. And if I had opened up about it, it would have been a very awkward family dynamic. So I just kept it to myself for many years. And my mom didn't even know about some of those things until years after we were out of the witnesses. Oh, wow. The more charismatic denominations would have been all over that. I tried that when I was in college and they're way too fundamental for me. I'm like, okay, Christians who believe in magic, but all right, we're going (laughs) to take a step back on the extremism. Yeah, ironically, if you call it magic, it's really bad. But if you call it a vision or whatever, that's... Yeah, the charismata, Holy Spirit, and then also being fascinated with Catholic ritual. I'm like, okay, all those combined, witchcraft was the way to go. It's because you got your spiritual gifts or magic, whatever you want to call it. You got the visceral aspect of physical ritual, which you don't see in the other denominations, It's all you sit there in a church, but you don't have the person with the sensor going through with the incense or the holy water, anything like that. Yeah. And my church was considered non-denominational, so very anti-ritual, not that you're going to be shunned for it, but when they pass out communion and things like that, but like Catholicism, along with Jehovah's Witnesses, was that wasn't like a subcategory of Christianity. You're outside. But I do think there's a healthy way of practicing if once you have that kind of stepping out and stepping back in bodhisattva type experience (laughs) where you can then rationally and somewhat practically incorporate an element of whatever you want to call it ritual and view it the same way if someone would view meditation or any other kind of quote-unquote spiritual practice just as a way of showing and experiencing reverence for the unknown and really that's to me what differentiates what I'd call religion from seeking is uh-huh. what's your attitude toward the unknown? Can you admit that's what most of it is? That we're just getting a tiny little preview and we're not supposed to box it all up in in understanding necessarily or some kind of empirical framework. 
I think a lot of what religion is intended to be is more guidelines on how to live your life and a general framework of here's how we think the world maybe works or the universe maybe works, but then leaving it up to the individual to figure the other things out, which on one hand is amazing, but on the other hand, we're hardwired to be afraid of certainty or of uncertainty, I should say. It's kind of like the darkness. We're afraid of what we can't see. So it's like people grasp onto what they can know and understand. And I feel like that's a lot of what drives some of this fundamentalist behavior is that fear of the unknown or the fear of what happens if I get things wrong, especially with we're raised in this heaven and hell dichotomy. It's if I do the wrong thing, my eternal soul's at stake versus saying, you know what? We're just going to do what our conscious says is right and wing it. The unknown, the hereafter, all of it would have been terrifying to me at some point, regardless of my upbringing, just realizing I don't have answers to this. But then as people collectively seek answers, as with any other belief system, you gravitate toward the loudest and boldest voices and then find safety in numbers when there's a congregation saying, yeah, we all incidentally believe exactly the same thing about that. Another interesting thing, I guess, is that I think for a lot of people, it's that's not the initial driving force. Like to me, it was like once that once I had that framework at such an early age, that's all I could think about. There's honestly a lot of people who don't think about that at an early age or even when they start attending church. And what drew them to it was a, a fight between good and evil in their own lives and the trauma of wandering and getting into all kinds of trouble and just a lifestyle that they have come to hate. And then they sort of accept that tangential baggage as well. Okay, yeah, I'll go along with that too. Heaven and hell. Safety at the end of the day. And they don't think on it too much, especially the hell part, because that's where it's, you've got, I think, the biggest non-starter as far as logic about a loving God is concerned. But yeah, once you are thinking that way, and especially if you're wired to think that way from a young age, like, how are you going to get past that problem if you had any kind of relationship with the divine and accept any kind of uncertainty? It would be insane to be like, yeah, I'm uncertain about if I might be going to hell and set on fire forever, but I'm okay with that. Just can hardly integrate those two things. So you mentioned how trauma can impact things, especially when it comes to faith. Do you feel that some of the events that have happened within the last 20-some years might have impacted our generation and the younger generation when it comes to our relationship with religion, our relationship with faith? Because I can tell you, like 9-11, stock market crashes, George Floyd, we look at wars around us. We have COVID. We have so so many emotionally significant events that have shaped our generation and the generations after us. How do you feel that impacts the whole concept of belief and faith, especially when we have religions out there that are very like heaven and hell? We're looking at this going, this feels like hell right now. What the heck? Honestly, I think that hyper reality makes people a little bit less believing. They'll still be attracted to like these pillars of fake certainty they still congeal around ideologies. But I don't find that there's a more staunch tendency toward belief among Gen Z and such, or at least 
very little inclination to actually express like the reasons why they would believe anything they say they believe. That that's such a sweeping generalization and probably terrible. <laughs> but I, what I'm drawing from really is that, and this is also a skewed subgroup here. But I went to a, a large evangelical university, and then I went back there ten years later to start a podcast and to try to coax some answers about basically this, like, why do you believe whatever you believe to the extent that you do, among other things, this lifestyle mm-hmm. and all of that. There weren't a lot of people, even within that largely homeschooled sphere that usually is very articulate, who could actually or wanted to actually explain like where they came from with their logic. I don't know how much the cultural traumas contribute to that. I think people are a little bit more transient in what they hold on to. They don't go, I'm a this. I mean, there's a lot of people really, I think, who take pride nowadays in being moderate or being a skeptic or whatever, whether or not they're genuinely in the middle ground, because the middle ground can be a dangerous place too. Curious what your observation is, and maybe we can get some back and forth on this. From what I've seen with being a witch and working at a witchy shop part-time, there's a lot of seekers. There's a lot of people who are looking for something to believe in. But what I'm also noticing is a lot of people also, they don't want to give up their power. We're in such a world where people feel powerless with what's been going on, not just in the last few years, but the last few decades. And they want to have a belief or a faith practice that allows them to still maintain sovereignty over themselves. I'm seeing people move towards various forms of witchcraft or belief systems that are more witchcraft-based or trying to find a way to reconcile Christianity and the mystic. So a lot of the psychic fairs that I've gone to, you have people who are like, we're Christian, but we're going to read tarot. Or we're Christian, we're going to talk to ghosts. Or Christian, we're also psychic. We're not calling it the charismata. We're calling it psychic ability. So people are trying to find ways to either completely deviate or try and reconcile their belief system they grew up with, with the experience that they've had in their adulthood and onward. I totally agree with that. I actually do see that. And I guess from the background I have where those things would have been considered totally incompatible. I see that as like them taking the Christianity side less seriously. But then again, if you're thinking more for yourself, maybe you are willing to integrate some of those things together that I would have seen as, you know, absolute black and white incompatible. That's interesting. Yeah, it has been very interesting on there. And it's led me to be very mindful when people come into the shop or whenever I'm in a space like a psychic fair or whatnot of asking them what their beliefs are so that I can then adjust based around that. I know some people who are former Christians who, because of what they've experienced, they're almost anti-Christian in how they explain things. And I try to be as respectful as possible on making sure that I don't go that route. And I'm very accepting. I was like, what do you believe? What? And then matching the paradigm. If they believe in archangels, it's like, all right, let's use that. If they believe in spiritual gifts, let's use that. If they're full on willing to say the magic word, we can do that too. But it's, again, a big thing on it is it's not my job to convert them or to tell them what to believe. 
it's my job to guide them so that they're able to make that next step in their own belief path. So you'll probably say that this is beyond your scope to venture a guess, but if you sense that someone holds a belief that's based purely on an experience that jaded them, would you consider that a true belief? It's true to them. That's going into the relativeness of truth that you talked about earlier is it, it's true to them. I can, again, provide more information, but it's not my role or my responsibility to try and change that belief. Unless it is harmful, that is the one time I would cross it. If we are looking at bigotry in its various forms, then yes, I'm going to try and have a deeper conversation with them, also accepting there's a ton of nuance involved in it. But if it's more that they saw something and now they believe that someone out there is Jesus Christ incarnate, again, I can nudge them, but it's not my job to tell them otherwise. I can agree with that. Yeah. Sometimes this is perceived as being judgmental, but I'll often judge someone's belief as insincere only from a place of knowing that I've done the same. Like it takes one to know one. And I've taken what I considered a belief to the absolute brink of just saying it. It's all I'm doing is repeating to myself, I believe this, I'm part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, I guess it officially dripped off and it's gone. So even within someone's mind, really, we're just waiting for the threshold at which you can admit that's not real. So there's kind of two parts. There's the articulate side, which is usually if someone talks about like my truth, it's how they've condensed that into words. And then there's whatever's going on in the background that's starting to nudge them one way or another. And I think as everyone should be always moving and shaping a bit, you never know how far you are from those lines. Mm -hmm. It will activate or deactivate a label. Exactly. We've gone on quite a bit here. So thank you so much for all this time and nerding out and going back and forth on the concepts of belief and faith and what it's like to grow up with these types of beliefs and now where we're at. Is there anything else, Matthew, that you want to share with our guests today? Oh, man, there's a million things we could talk about. That one just (laughs) flew right by, didn't it? That was awesome. Yeah, Yeah, I'll just leave them with a plug. If you want more of that kind of nerding out, there's plenty of it in my book, Swept Up, Lessons from the End Times, bouncing back between narrative and the philosophical, theological takeaways and all that. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to tear anyone down. I really always want to be constructive. I don't want to mock or belittle anyone except maybe Jerry Falwell. So yeah. What did Jerry do? A lot. You can read about it in the later chapters. (laughs) Got it. Where can people find you online? I just uploaded an audiobook version of this on Spotify. So I have a Spotify account. It's read by an AI version of Snoop Dogg. I'm on Instagram Sometimes, not very often, but Matt Garnier, point zero, as in the two characters, period and zero. And then Facebook under my name, and I think that's it. YouTube, Matt Garnier. We'll make sure to include those in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, my pleasure. That was a fun conversation. I feel that more we learn about how our upbringing affects how we view the world in the here and now, the better position we're in to choose differently if we're realizing that our behaviors in the present are fueled by our experiences in the past and those things are things that we don't want to deal with. So let's pivot to what is coming up over the next few weeks. 
on July 9th, which is a week from today, we're going to talk about recovering from burnout amidst hustle culture. Hustle culture is still around, unfortunately. So how do we navigate a world that still has that? And our guest, Ash Burnside, is going to talk a bit more about that. And then we're going to bring on July 16th, Yahan Hamzezadeh, and I hope I got the pronunciation correct. We're going to talk about psychedelics and spirituality. He's actually my second guest that we're bringing on this discussion. We're learning more and more about plant medicine and how it can be used in tandem with allopathic conventional quote-unquote medicine. So I feel it's important to also bring in this topic so people can be aware. There's been a lot of propaganda that has been anti-drugs from like the 60s, 70s, 80s onward. I was a D.A.R.E. graduate, as it were. I feel it's important for us to have a critical understanding of this topic so that we can speak intelligently, or if someone's trying to pull the wool over our eyes, that we can call bullshit. We're wrapping up this week's episode. Remember, your past is not your present. What you were taught in the past may have been true then, but it doesn't mean it has to be true now. It can still have an influence on you, and it's important for you to recognize what that influence is so that you can choose differently when you want to. With that, have a spiritual AF week. Thank you for joining us for Spiritual AF Sundays. This show is hosted by the Mystic Geek, that's me. Got comments or questions from today's episode? You can either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com or send me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash themysticgeek. Don't worry, I'll put the link in the show notes. Help others start off their week with a spiritual AF Sunday by sharing this episode with them. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts help spiritual seekers find our show. So do the thing. <laughs>